Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best panels pertaining to RPG design and publishing. This has been made possible by Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Now to the show! Episode 46, Icons and Anchors, recorded at Metatopia 2014, presented by Rob Donahue and Jason Penn. So, this is about icons and anchors, and I'll talk about those specifically, but frankly speaking, this is a panel about GMing techniques um, that are dedicated to making your world come to life a little bit more. Um, and icons and uh, anchors are both two fantastic mechanics that are shown up. There we go. Get part of slow service. Hey, that works. Um, now, it is... It may sound a little weird at a, at a convention about game design to be talking GM techniques, uh, and this is why icons and, and anchors are both two very good examples to talk about, because they are examples of how you can write techniques into the rules um, so that your game is not just resolution, but also includes best practices for how it should be played and how it's going to be most fun for everyone. Um, for the folks recording at home, listening at home, I should at least be polite. Uh, I'm Rob Donahue, People Had Games. And I'm Jason Pictures, the lady. So, uh, let, me, let me open up with the first question. How many people here are familiar with 13th Age? Okay. 13th Age has an idea called icons. It is a setting element in the game. There are 13 icons in the setting, and they are each named powerful figures who shape the, the, the setting. There's the Archmage, who is the one supreme mage of the setting, whose workings of magic cover the entire continent and have been running for centuries. And there's the Dragon Emperor, who runs the one great empire at the center of the world. And there is the Elf Queen, who is the Titania, the queen of all elves. And there's a bunch of, what's your favorite? Well, I do love the Lich King. Because I had an on and off, you know, romance with the Lich King. There you go. So it's kind of fantastic. The Lich King is basically Vecna with the serial numbers filed off. So I'm not filed off very hard. No, that hmm, boy, this incredibly powerful necromancer with one hand and one eye. I don't know what they could be talking about. Um, with a mechanical benefit, benefit for cutting off your own hand in service to him. Yes. Uh, if only they worked in killing gazebos, but. The uh, the setting has got some elements that you would expect from a regular setting. It's got cities with names, and it's got a map, and it's got all those things. But those are kind of secondary, because the most important thing in the setting are these icons, and the things they're doing, and the things they're doing in play. Now, on the surface, I say that to you. If you've ever read The Forgotten Realms, this sounds like a recipe for disaster. This sounds like, oh, so instead of one Elminster, they got 13. Awesome. And that is a danger. But they are smart enough to recognize that risk. And the key of this game is not so much that the icons are important, but that the player's characters are all tied to the icons. So the icons define the setting, 
and the players are connected directly to the most important elements of the setting. Yeah, which means that fundamentally the characters are important. And the characters are important not only in their immediate lifetime, but in history, in the proposed future. And every organization that's anchored to those icons yep. is, is something yeah. that's part of it. That, that, that is the important thing to realize when you look at something like 13 Page. Let's say you've got a group of assassins. It never exists in a vacuum. That group of assassins is in some way connected up to an icon. Um, Maybe it's the Jack of Shadows, maybe it's oh, sorry, Prince of Shadows, uh, maybe it's the Three Dragons, maybe it's some other group or whatever. But that is connected <coughs> to that, and because of that, your character is connected to them as well. So that connection to, let's say it's the Three Dragons or one of the bad guy kind of groups, is expressed not just as a connection to the dragons, but a connection to everything in the world that cascades forth from the dragons. Um, so you are deeply connected everywhere. Now, easy to say this. So how do you represent it? Mechanically, during character creation, you get a certain number of points. Three, yeah, pretty much three. Plus you get some more. Sorcerers yeah. get some more for some unrelated reasons. But you get a couple of those. And you say, all right, it's actually points. And it says, all right, I'm going to distribute these points among the icons I think are most interesting. And I want a relationship with that icon, and it's going to cost me a certain number of points based on the nature of that icon. And basically, this the exact point cost can be flexed, but the general model is if being on good terms with this icon is a good thing, it's more expensive. Um, so being on good terms with the Dragon Emperor or the Archmage or something is mostly a benefactor and a positive force. That's more expensive than being on their bad side. Similarly, being on the good side of someone who's a real problem to be on the good side of, like the Diabolist, um, that's cheaper. So you can sort of, the, the relationship are cost it cost out that way. I think it actually is a little bit unnecessary. Um, it, it, there's still a bit of a stink of mid-maxing to that. But the bottom line being, at the end of this, you have relationships with between one and three uh, icons. And those relationships are flavored in some ways, either... Largely positive, largely negative, or mixed. And I personally just find that the presumption of alignment in that system, where you've got 13 completely yeah. different perspectives and moral perspectives, I don't think it's worth that amount of effort. I think it detracts somewhat from the yeah. impressiveness of the machinations between. Uh, the Archmage and the Diabolist on, oh yeah, we should probably keep those dragons chained, because yeah, remember last time a demon crop rose from the ground? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, the attention of the good and mighty is just as bad as the attention of the bad. Oh, totally. So, those are translated to a certain number of dice, which you roll at the beginning of a session. Um, and so, I roll my, I've got one die for the Archmage, one die for the Diabolist, one die for the dragons. Uh, and I roll. If it comes up a one, two, three, four, nothing. If it comes up a five or six, that means that icon is going to matter in this session. This is now a substantial part of the session. If it comes up a six, it's going to matter in a way that I'm actually probably going to be happy about. If it comes up a five, maybe not so happy. This is still, this is still slightly flawed. It's subject to having a bad run of luck. 
Uh, you could theoretically have the entire table roll all fours and less, fours or less. Uh, a lot of people have some tweaked versions of how to go about doing this. Um, but the fundamental underlying principle is fantastic. Exactly. Because it basically says, no, I as a player am saying these things are important to me, and the rules are saying these things are going to enter play. Um, and this is a wonderful example of a technique tying players to the character, the setting, giving the setting names and faces and, and priorities, and then giving it mechanical privilege to make sure that it happens. I'm going to hop over to anchors now. Uh, anchors are a mechanic that we use in Fate sometimes. Um, we are familiar with Fate. Okay. Anchors are basically, after you've taken an aspect, you write down the name of a person who is related to that aspect. If you took an aspect about being trained as a swordsman, then maybe you write down the name of your sword master. Maybe you write down the name of a rival. Maybe you write down the name of the guy who made your sword. Whatever. You do this for all of your aspects, and the result is you've just added four or five NPCs to the settings with connections to you that are at a slight removal. They're through this particular lens. Now, I take a broader view of anchors. I know you coined the term, but, yep. you know, stuff happens. So I tend to also expand to include objects and places. So, for instance, let's say in the present files, I think that the most impressive thing is broken man from a broken home is the icon for it is the aspect for Dresden, and his mother's pentacle is the anchor of that aspect. So it's the expression in the external world of this ephemeral concept. Right. So I do the same thing with, with places. Yeah. Now, um, people are more I, actionable. Yeah, exactly. Now here's a, I don't disagree with that. I, I think it's doable, but I would be very restrained in doing it because yeah. people are more interesting, people drive play, people are things that have motives and interests and actions and you can interact with. Um, maybe having a signature item like the amulet or whatever is a good hook from time to time, but by and large that's going to be static and the only thing I can really do with that is take it away. And since that's just kind of crappy, uh, I, I don't even want to go down that path at all. Places are a little bit more dynamic, but that's because usually places are, frankly, the back channel sneaking someone in. To use Dresden Files as an example, Mac and Alley's would be a fine place because really <coughs> it's Mac. I'm bringing in the bartender owner as the face for this. I just am doing it with a little bit of sleight of hand. Yeah. Well, yes. and I point out the pentacle is only important because of his mother. It is a backdoor to his mother. It's a backdoor to his mother. It's a physical expression of the thing we're talking about. But it means that the loss of the pentacle, the use of the pentacle, is fundamentally important in the story. And it also means, when you get down to it, you can say, yeah, so you're always going to have your pentacle because for narrative reasons, we're not going to rob you of this. I mean, um, in Core Dresden, for instance, you would have my mother's pentacle as an aspect. And then you run into the, and they stole my mother's pentacle. Oh, well, that's just a fate point generating situation. It is. It is. Like, oh, I'm starting the scene. Hey, I don't have my pentacle. <laughs> beep, beep. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, but no, but, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick by this pretty hard. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, and I think the folks bear this out and will continue to bear it out. Yeah. The 
Pentacle is interesting in the absence of his mother because it is a window into his mother, and it is effectively a manifestation of the information we start getting in flashback and in exposure. Finding out more about the Pentacle is synonymous with finding out more about his mother. And more about magic. But yeah, that's digressing. And there's uh, nothing that's not about magic in Dresden, so. Fantastic. So, but the point being, this is once again a mechanical way to privilege something that the player is going to have fun with and get more. It makes, this particular technique is good in general because it also makes it easier to invoke and compel aspects because suddenly I've got somebody who's on the hook. Hey, this guy has shown up in a scene. That may end up being a compel, it may end up being an invoke, depending on how things play out. But it's now much easier to punch that guy in the head and have it be a compel. Um, which, especially if you've got a group who go for very poetic aspects, like like mine do, um, they, yeah. they tend yeah. to get yeah. pick aspects right. that are, are beautiful and those and they sound and how really the heck do you use them. Yes, uh, bathed in fire and fury. I'm like, okay, aside from you just picking fights, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I'm just gonna say this. In a similar sense, this concept can be expanded uh, in different directions. So you can say, for instance, the setting has an aspect of scum and villainy. Then the Thieves Guild is the concrete expression of that aspect. It's the anchor for the setting. Right, but, and but again, Thieves Guild is going to have a face. There's going to be somebody in that game who is the Thieves Guild, your heart. So, it's still going to cascade down into someone who they can talk with, who they can have a scene. Right, right. So, those are, those are two examples, and I've sort of held those up because I, I, they're both examples of how you can write rules to, uh, to bring this in. And I want to talk a little bit about what they have in common. And with that, they are both rules to help the GM develop a narrative sensibility. Now, what is a narrative sensibility? A narrative sensibility is the ability to look at an array of things and tell what the most interesting story about them is. Um, this is the case where, this, this is something that actually shows up if you watch a lot of TV. If you've watched a lot of TV, I'll lay dollars to donuts that you can watch the first 10 minutes of pretty much any mystery program and guess with relatively good accuracy who did it. Because you are familiar with the patterns and you're familiar with the tropes and you understand the narrative sensibilities of these shows. They're not going to, they're going to introduce that character in the first couple minutes. It's going to be a character of a particular type. It's probably going to be an actor of a particular type. And they're not going to bring in some surprise twist at the end because that is an unsatisfying story for him. What, you mean Peter Dinklage isn't a charming villain? Uh, I know, I know. Um, but learning to just look at a set of things and turn it into a story is one of the most critical skills you can develop as a GM. Uh, because ultimately, in every game, that is what your players are doing. They are day between them and the setting books that you're reading and the role books that you're reading, you've basically got this big pile of stuff on them. Anyone see Apollo 13, this is what you were doing. You were doing the, we have, okay, we need to make this fit in this with this. That is what you must do as a GM with all the pieces in there. And the stuff in the box 
is the contents of the character sheet and the contents of the setting book and the things you learn talking about things to your players and the conversations you had when you did your world world and the stuff that you read on the internet and you think was cool and the tarot reading you did five minutes ago and all this crap. It just crap until you can make a pattern out of it. Now, that is so incredibly useful for an improv style play. I, I'm curious how well this works in the heavy prep style. I'm actually saying it's critical, and that is why we started off with icons and actors. Fair enough. Because those are both examples of how we do that. Icons and anchors, you'll notice in both cases, at the end of it, produce a list of crap that has specific ways for you to bring it into play. To take the icons as an example, I have not, well, I've started with 13 icons, and I know something about them from the setting book, and I have some understanding of them. After my players have picked, I now know which of these icons interest my players. I've narrowed the set, very well. I know which ones interest them proportionately. This one's got three connections to it, this one's got one. And I know the general nature of those. And suddenly, what was sort of an abstraction in the description of the setting is now something I can plan, plan sessions about. I can look at those icons, or I don't have to look at those icons because the dice are going to force me to look at those icons. The dice, I could just, oh, what? Blah, blah, blah. I, don't, I have no idea what's going on. But then at the beginning of the session, the dice go off, the dice say, by God, the three dragons are coming in. And i got to work with that. And the elf queen is pissed. Yeah. Why is she so pissed off? Yeah, there may have been a thing with the, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and similarly, anchors provide you another list. Anchors say, all right, it's great that you've got this, this nice abstract stuff and interesting stuff in your character sheet, but here are, here are five characters that I have something to do something with. Um, so the question is, how do you turn that pile of crap in the box into a round filter? It gets easier, but it is not easy at the outset. It is an overwhelming and daunting task, and the first challenge you have to realize is the number of places the crap is coming from. Um, a novice jam mistake is to think that the crap is what they get from the setting book and from the adventures that they're reading. Those are parts of it, but let's talk for a minute about character sheets. Uh, there's a phrase we occasionally use when we talk about character sheets, and that is that the character sheet is a love letter to the GM. The character sheet may be full of mechanics, it may be full of rules, but if you stop and look at a player's character sheet and ask yourself the question, what is this saying about what the character of the player wants in the game? You will find that it is full of answers. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. There was a, a session earlier today where we were talking about legacy elements in RPGs, and one of them was equipment classes. Uh, and equipment lists are very important. That is true more often than not. That long, meticulous, incredibly detailed, down to every nail and penny equipment list it seems like it's a real waste of time that we all do that. It's done out of habit or tradition or nothing. Holy shit, there's wolf spade. And that is the thing. Sometimes it's because the player actually likes being prepared for things. It's because they like to feel clever, and they like to feel that their forethought and preparation is worth paying attention. And so I, as a GM, look at that and go, they brought silver weapons and wolves there. 
I need to be given a reason why that was a good idea. And now suddenly, what this pile of crap has this actionable, interesting item that I can use. And I can say, I'm going to put a werewolf in this. Because, yeah, the guy thought to bring some wolf bait and silver. So, I could forget that and ignore it, and he could, we could spend the next 20 sessions of the game without it ever coming up, and that wouldn't be a problem. It wouldn't make it a worse game. But doing this makes it a better game. The same thing is true about power. The same thing is true about weapon. The same thing is true about defeats, about aspects. On some level, if you are a GM, think of it in these terms. Every other game has aspects on the sheet. They just don't call it that. Everything on the sheet is an aspect, and you are just looking to invoke it. Because invoking really just means you're going to make it meaningful to play. And so this guy has decided that he's been buying stuff up for his laser powers, if you do not give him an opponent for whom laser powers are the right fight, the most awesome fight, not the easiest fight, don't just give him a guy who's vulnerable to laser powers, but give him a fight for whom the fight is, give him a guy who's vulnerable to everything but laser powers. But no, shouldn't I give him like Diamond Man and Mr. Mirror and all Yes, should I just, oh, oh those are signals of where I should screw with him. He's invested heavily in fire magic, so clearly I need to throw fire-resistant enemies at him, because he's too good at fire. Exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. line up for your punch. That's, that, that's, that's <laughs> not how you, so you are not trying to punish your player for doing a cool, awesome thing. You're trying, and you're not trying to, you're not even trying to overly reward them. You're trying to recognize them. You're trying to say, you're trying to establish the narrative sensibility that understands that this is a fire mage, and there are certain stories that are cooler for a fire mage, and then there are others. And some of them are stories where he's at a, at a disadvantage. Not because he's facing anti-fire dude, but you know what? A fire a fire mage running out of water in the middle of a desert is a fun story. It does irony. I mean, for sure. <laughs> it's a little ham-fisted, but, you know, it's like, yes, I can level mountains and I can turn all this sand to glass, and God, I'm so thirsty. <laughs> don't exploit the weaknesses, don't punish him for the weaknesses, but you can recognize the weaknesses just as much as you can the strengths. And this is why bringing in that fire, fireball is as much of an aspect as anything else, if you want to look at it that way. Now, I'd like to bring in some more interesting nuances that you can have with it. So, the Icon, uh, the, the anchor relationship can also rub rather close to relationship webs. Specifically, I'm thinking of, okay, what happens if this person is the anchor of one, uh, my belief and your uh, goal? Well, and that's, that's important. That flags something else even more important. I'm going to share with you all right now the biggest technique in the world. The best way make all this, all this stuff work. We like to think that this is how it is. Alright? I got one thing, I got a character, I got an NPC, a character, a character, I make a dump. This is not how you make a connection. This is crap. That is how you make Go through something else. Now, what do I mean by that? Jason and Alan, I've got a thief. We could establish a connection between our two characters. We could establish a shared history. And maybe we could do that. I'm not saying really don't do that at all. But that is okay. We're 
Turkey buddies. Okay, sure. Now, instead, we're going to introduce something else. This is Silas over here. Silas, the old drunken swordmaster. I owe Silas because when I was a kid, he pulled me out of the gutter and taught me how to protect myself. And he's an old drunk now, but I look out for him. And Silas killed a man in a bar fight. Was that your dad? Uh, no, I hate my dad. My uncle, however. Okay. So, suddenly, you all have the narrative sensibilities. Is that more full of stories? Is there more that you can do with that than us just knowing each other and having a background? Suddenly, Silas is a knob. He can push and pull and turn that hits both of us and pulls us in different directions. Now, we've done that once. I've got four or five players. We do that four or five times, ten times, whatever. That, where we previously are just connecting the characters with just the opposed circle, is now this crazy starburst. It hasn't required a lot of work on our part to build, but is inventing a world that's rich and incredible. Uh, and that's that's a really powerful thing. And I'm sharing that one with you guys just because it's awesome. <laughs> but just GM to GM, that's that is a good trick to use for your game. Oh, Jason has uh, something to draw. So, um, uh, are you elaborating? Now, here's the other interesting thing about that. I don't need to even put these things in conflict. Um, Jason, well, Jason pushed right for that so that you know it'd be conflict over Silas. That's not necessary. I know there's a 50 sensibility that says drive towards conflict, but no. If we just have something that's important to both of us, conflict can evolve from that naturally. And the conflict doesn't need to be between me and Jason. As long as I, the GM, push Silas in some direction, that puts tension on one or both of our connections. Tension is more important than conflict in terms of keeping the play going. I mean, I don't want to get into literary theory and blah, blah, blah. If you want to call attention to control conflict tension and drive things in different directions, please feel free. But I don't feel that people need to be at immediately contradictory purposes to drive a good story and drive a good game. All that it requires is that they each have strong emphasis and those impediments is not exactly in the same direction. Yeah, um, when I was running uh, 19th Century Cameras Club, um, there was one character that everybody was terrified do something and we'll have to pick a side. And for weeks and months I couldn't figure out how to do that, but it didn't matter. No. It was the how fear of that. Yes. Yep. This is the three set setup that I have in one of the settings I'm working on for Spark. So A, B, and C are the player characters. So the rest are NPCs. Your IP is fake There you go. Rock solid. Funerals are great. I stole that from Macklin. Yeah. But it's solid. And well, but that's the thing. For all that we're talking about, all these things, the pieces that make it stick together, because there are so many pieces of crap in that box of dumping on the table, the connections don't need to be exotic. I don't need we don't each need to come up with an elaborate backstory with Silas that's full of twists and turns and genies and magic rings. 
Silas could be my uncle. He could be my brother-in-law. Family is a hugely powerful thing in the um, And if anyone, if anyone who has ever played Amber or Birthright will probably have picked that up very quickly. Um, because we add, one of the problems, that, and this is true of fiction and this is true of games, is that there's a certain conservation of characters in the universe. Right now, I've become this mention, and I've seen all these people, and I've walked out there, and I can see other people, but there are more people here than I could possibly keep track of. And if I were trying to convey this in the game, if I was running the game of me doing this, then I would either have to sort of vaguely describe that there were some people in this room, I would have to, or I would have to name them all, which would be terrible, or I might vaguely describe them and then give attention to one or two, which is then me as a team going, these are the ones that matter. Hey, yeah, this is victim A right over there. Um, but so we can't simulate the complexity of actual human contact with the game. So instead, we have to recognize the invitation. One reason that things like family matter is that they basically say, there are going to be at least this many, this many people who you can't just forget about the crowd scene. Uh, there will be this many people who must matter. Uh, and on a similar note, I believe there's three other Canadians at this convention. They are all uh, anchors for me. Yeah. Because in group, in my little window, Ah, something in common, rare. Okay, I can keep track of the yep. four. And that's, is that exotic? Is that crazy? No. But it's normal and it's human. And that's the way we actually make connections. <coughs> and so when we talk about narrative sensibilities, there is an instinct that we need to go over the top. And that we need to make these things really, really emotionally engaging, or otherwise they're not meaningful. But Clark is a good friend of mine. I don't think we have a backstory. Uh, I don't think we have any, any shared traumatic experiences or, or crazy war stories. But Clark is a good friend of mine. He's very important. And that's enough for me to work with in life, and that's enough for me to work with in game. As long as I'm willing to do that. As long as I am not going to just say, oh, that's not interesting. I have to silence that quickly. And we're deep in technique category here. I'm not sure how much of this you can actually pull into the game without actually getting real preachy and like preaching some stuff now. But <laughs> um, that said, I mean, these techniques can't be solid rules. You can have, I mean, dog dog. So, there's two classes of people there are the colonizers and the colonized. And the interactions between these two groups are radically different. And it, it's a hard rule. And focusing on those intersection points, I mean, there, there's a lot of very interesting fodder, future design. And we haven't gone that deeply in that domain because historically, we've done the, oh, it's a technique. Ah, the GM will figure it out. Well, there lies the other one, is that it is easier to write how things are than it is to write how things work. If you look at the average uh, role-playing setting 
Gatman, uh, whatever. It is an encyclopedic snapshot of what is going on and what is there. And hopefully what is going on and what is there is interesting and cool and full of enough elements that you can pick out of that two-toy box forever. But there is only room in our brains for so many of those ones. And there are only so many of those that are going to get published and read and anyone's going to get a crowd of them. Uh, and it takes a lot of words to convey that. Whereas if you can convey why things happen and how they're going on, then it brings me to life. I will tell you, give me a map of fantasy city. And on one hand, I will give you 50 pages of written key description of what's going on in the city. And on the other, I will give you someone who explains how people eat, where people get their food, where people shit, where people go to have sex, where people go to find meaning, and we will see which one of those is more interesting to find. And I will tell you it is the second Because once you are looking at how things happen and how people do things, once again, we're back to that boring things get really interesting when they're connected in complex ways. And gaming will always connect things in complex ways, so there's entirely reason to start with something as mundane as the fact that the city has a lot of boring. That seems like a really boring detail, is that right? But corn comes from somewhere. So you just told me something about what the surrounding countryside is like, and you told me something about what's not there. Okay, there's not as much cattle, there's not as much grain. And then you're saying, well, corn actually takes a certain amount of processing. And a certain amount you can't really just eat corn. I mean, now you can, but it's got a kind of interesting history. So my company said, if there's mills in this town, and if there's mills, well, suddenly we're back to talk about people, aren't we? That means there's millers. And if almost everyone in this town is eating corn, well, then who are the most powerful people in town? They, not the farmers, because they they just produce it. That doesn't turn it into food. That doesn't turn it into sales. It's the guys who are turning it into a milling period. Suddenly, suddenly, this town is starting to come to life from one data point, because mundane things stack upon each other, normal human things stack upon each other to build them. Um, there's a fantastic uh, blog post about uh, the existence of an identify spell and how that destroys oh, the God. world. I so wish everybody had been able to make it Because it requires a pearl of exactly 100 gold pieces of value. The problem is the pricing is fluid because <laughs> if everyone's buying 100 gold piece value pearls, the market's going to run out of 100 gold piece value pearls in very short order. And suddenly you're buying pearls that are much more valuable for, or buying 100 gold piece pearls for much more money. And suddenly it's not really a 100 gold piece pearl. And, 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 uh, <laughs> um, if anybody, uh, Emily Dresner Thornburg, who's done some poetry writing, really like a whole fact today has written a fantastic series of blog posts, uh, basically looking at medieval banking and economics and applying those models to the EU, um, and writing about how her elbows destroy the local economy and things like that. Uh, they are slightly tongue-in-cheek, but largely hilarious posts, and I'm trying to remember her URL right this And while we do that, yeah. um, you, talk, you also want to getting things such as 
All right. So we now know about the Corn Merchants Guild. What could make this more interesting? Ah, why don't we make one more mundane thing? That is a natural consequence of this. So there's a port. This port is going to be shipping all this uh, grain somewhere else. So where's that going? Oh, Rome. All right, so how about that, you know, Egypt analog? There we go. Yeah, that. Projectmultiplexer.com. Projectmultiplexer.com for the recording. Show notes, we have more show notes. Uh, I might have to actually make show notes for this, so, well. That's your help. Yeah, it totally is. But at this point, we've spun far from the original topic, but hopefully you understand why this is all about sort of bringing you a little life. So at this point, I'm totally open to questions. I have one more. Oh, go for it. One of the things I like to spin out. Uh, anchors and icons. I, I tend to merge them in one more broad concept. I'm, I'm a lumber not a splitter. Sorry, biology go. Um, so the fun thing I like is when you consider things like D&D alignments. Especially in the first at D&D land where you spoke lawful good. And there's that was, that was creatures of lawful good, and there's planes of lawful I know, good. I know. That it's a really interesting territory that people move away from in D and D, but from a design perspective, ooh, that's well. I mean, there in D and D and every fantasy, there's a lot there to be thought about if you spend any amount of time studying the actual history of religion and going, what happens when religion becomes transactional? <laughs> because that's ultimately what D and D faith is. It's like, no, there's no faith in the ineffable unknown. Thor just kicked the crap out of that dragon right over there. We know Thor's a god. The only question is, do I shop at Thor or do I shop at Odin? <laughs> um, and because that's what it is, they're brands, and you have brand loyalty to a deity, and you will hopefully ever work. And it actually makes a very interesting, compelling case against evil in those worlds because. All the evil deities are like, and then, yes, do evil, and then come to us, and we'll still get punished in a Christian hell sort of way. And I'm like, but you're evil, and we know it. Look, it's right there on the tin. It's like, it's like, it's like a cigarette warning label. Worshiping Baal leads to eternal damnation and, and being in a footstool or something really unpleasant. Oh no, I've got to quit these. Though it makes me then, if you actually start running with it, it's like, oh, well, then why are people worshiping Baal? Well, because Baal is handing out free blowjobs right and left. That's, I mean. Also, you might get promoted to a demon, yeah. and then you might get to eat your bullies. So, there's pluses. How is that appealing? <laughs> oh, okay, instead of sort of a bloating fangy thing, you're going to become sort of a scaly fangy thing with all traces of your humanity destroyed. Woo! Humanity's overrated. I win! I guess, but you're immortal once you're a demon. I'm immortal once I'm in heaven, too. Because, and I know it's there. Because Bahamut showed up in town last week. <laughs> or if he didn't, he's still giving us freaking cure spells. I mean, there are, there's no questions here. At least that's where you think he'll come Well, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's totally yeah. an option. <laughs> so, yeah. With that, Questions, comments, death threats, I'll accept all of the above. I have a question. I am trying to work out um, 
that, that in my previous game, uh, characters have relationship characters. The recommendation is for the GM to make sure that there's crossover, that multiple PCs are friend or enemy with the same people. Yep. So, well, first of all, it's easier on the GM, but also so they'll keep having that connection. Now, I'm trying to alter that for a future game, and what I'm trying to decide around it is that idea of friends and enemies. How important is that really, or could I make it sort of more of a vague connection between people? How old are the characters? Um, well, the other thing, they're teenagers. In this one, undetermined. Okay. And so, the reason it is actually entirely the reason to step away from friends and friends of enemy, because as we get older, we build communities around what matters to matter to us. So, it is not that most people will exist in the context of friends and enemies, except in very specific circumstances. But is this a drinking person? Is this a sports friend? Is this is this an RPG person? Uh, there are, if I were to categorize my life, there are lots of people who I see here who are in this bucket. Uh, some people might exist in more than one bucket, but my buckets define me as a person, and the people in those buckets define my connections. So the interesting thing there is, I would find. I mean, it's very focused on the age. <coughs> right and wrong. Likes me, doesn't like me. Might be a stronger focus for that age, for instance. Um, so long as someone doesn't like someone, you're good. Um, you, you really just need to have one disagreement. Because if I like Rob... And Rob likes Clark, but Clark hates my guts. This gets problems at the bar. Yep. Well, okay. So, that is something that seems like it's going to work on paper, but tends to die in the cloud of passive-aggressive fire. The rub is that, in fact, just as in life, most people will sort of like try to pretend there's not a problem. Often to someone's detriment. Now, if you think that would make for fun play, then hook that in. But it's not going to make for fun play in every game. But it's important to recognize that dislike and hate, yes, every now and again we get the full on gamer game, we get the full on troll, and we get the guy who's being an asshole. But no, dislike leads to, it does not lead to conflict, it leads to exclusion. It leads to snubbing, it leads to. Understated things that minimize and minimize the conflict and at a cost to the person who needs power. But I'm the cleric. Yeah. And Clark won't let me come along. Yeah. See. But the thing is, I would let you come along. Right. I would just like, I would like. You just bitch about him. I would just. Yeah. Just because I don't heal you, you because you're a heathen. Are you reinventing a hmm? No, but the real folk are reinventing Prime Minister as far as I'm so, Light-headed foe. So how would you do a model with, with using relationships to build tension in a, a game group such as mine that instinctively shies away from player versus player hunt? I would get them to help each other. At least they are better on the Say more. So, what do you mean? Clark, you're an awesome writer. 
And it's making you uncomfortable for me to tell you that. I'm going to take telling the rest of you people here that Clark is not right, because he is. And he is cringing and dying inside as I do this. Because Clark is not comfortable with that spotlight, and he's not comfortable with that level of praise. And that is how I create tension with people who like each other very much. <laughs> Best channel ever. <laughs> um, now, the other, the other way that I have seen this happen is the we're friends. Crap that guy who's connected to both of us different in different ways. Sorry, don't we can single you out. Um, it has pissed us off and has killed someone in a bar fight. Now we have to deal with this problem. Yep. But he's, you know, my uncle, and sure. Well, I mean, I'm actually and here, Kevin. I take it a little further in the dysfunctional path. Uh, I come from an Irish family, and my family is full of big, big-hearted people who are genuinely kind to their toes who are generous and loving and will give you the shirt off their back if they think you need it. And they will do this to their own detriment. Um, they will very happy, happily sublimate their own needs and their own desires and the things that are important to them to help other people. They are the people who will put the oxygen mask on the other person first rather than themselves. And that is admirable in many ways and dumb in many ways. And a lot of problems come from this. The, again, setting up that tension where the options are all about helping your friends and the costs come from you. Because you think, if we're playing in a game and I have the option of helping you by hurting myself and I do that, that's going to make you crazy. But I'm going to keep doing it. Right. And you know what's then going to happen? We're going to have tension. You're going to say, stop doing good things for me. <laughs> and there's a couple systems that actually pay attention to that specifically. Um, a really good one is the Sword of the Crown, the Inspeakable Power of Scuff uh, by Bill Tree. Um, where giving a gift to someone gives you a bond over them. Yeah. You can use that bond to stop them from killing an NPC under your control. Yeah, I, I, and I do all sorts, all sorts of other machinations. But effectively, they go and hawk with you if you give them a gift. Well, see, but that's a little different. I mean, gift giving is really powerful, right? And it's, a, it's there's all sorts of cultural traditions for it, and there's a whole lot of meaning in giving gifts and creating debt and managing debt and moving it around. Debt is a, a really important idea, but it is tangential to the kind of problem that Clark is dealing with. Right, you really are. <laughs> Don't want to get in conflict with each other. They actually do want to get along. They want to build it. They want to all pull together and make things go. Which is fine. So I'm totally one of those people. Um, but you still can have that create problems. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets left. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? We're more than happy to solve specific problems. Or something. I think you've talked about this idea. Yeah. One, of the, one of the other features in the other game is that after people have an encounter with one of these NPCs, their stats go up. And the, the thing is, you, you kind of pump these relationship characters for points. Okay. You get your you get you get your ego points out of having scenes with these characters. And the idea is that you, you kind of end up 
uh, increasing the difficulty as you sort of escalate the relationship. Sure. And I'm trying to figure out how I can make that attention between the players because if they have different relationships with this person, does that make sense that like somebody's ruining the relationship with someone else? Or, I don't know. So, no, yeah, because all the matters is proximity. Yeah. Let's say we're using. Let's say let's let's use a rock star as an example. It doesn't matter what the relationship is a rock star. It just matters how close you are. And that's that's what's going to drive a lot. Now there are other interesting subgroups that have come up. I mean, like the fact that uh, this subgroup are a bunch of assholes. That that just made the decision that gets made. Because since we're talking about people in terms of groups, there's always going to be a, a certain kind of simplification and, and potential complication of the, oh, hey, uh, Adam Baldwin has just moved from uh, someone who's a, a, a famous person to a, a huge thing in the culture to someone who represents a particular kind of voice within that group. And that position change can have a profound impact on them. Uh, but that is more, that'll be more of a dramatic moment in the scope of the game. But generally speaking, proximity doesn't matter. As long as I see someone every every couple of days, it doesn't matter if the relationship is full of problems or it's warm and fuzzy. Uh, whereas at the same time, in the same is true there in Japan. If, if my arch nemesis is in Japan and he's also your best friend, we're neither of us seeing him very often. So he's not a big part of the picture. And the other thing I find uh, worth reminding people. Yeah, the more they like you, the more you can hurt them. Yeah. Yay, the magic lich. So, are there any other comments, questions? Cool, concerns? Excellent. Thank you all for coming. This was a Thank you.